It's then 16 minutes later at 9.02, United Flight 175 hits the South Tower, cutting between the 78th and 84th floors. And then 57 minutes later at 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapses and and Wells is is there. He's in there. Now, from all the information you know and what you know about your son, can you walk us through what he's doing between 9.02 and 9.59 for those 57 minutes? September 11th, 2001, located on the 104th floor of the South Tower in the World Trade Center, Wells Crowther was busy at work in his office. His mother, Allison Crowther, who operates the Red Bandana Project, joins the podcast to share his story of American heroism. So, let's do it. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight I see you broken and beat Head pulled down over your eyes Every part of you wants to surrender but darling, you were meant to survive With So... It's 8.46 a.m. American Airlines Flight 11 flies into the North Tower. Where is your son, Wells, at this point? Wells is at his office on the 104th floor of the South Tower. He uh, was an equities trader for Sandler O'Neill and Partners, and that's where their offices were located. It's then 16 minutes later at 9.02, United Flight 175 hits the South Tower, cutting between the 78th and 84th floors. And then 57 minutes later at 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapses and and Wells is is there. He's in there. Now, from all the information you know and what you know about your son, can you walk us through what he's doing between 9.02 and 9.59 for those 57 minutes? 57 minutes? Yes, I'd be happy to. And also, uh, you should know that it took us a very long time, months and months and months, to piece all of the, of this together, what he did. We we knew nothing in the beginning, which was a terrible place to be. We just knew he wasn't coming home. So um, what happened was when the, the North Tower, which uh, was the first one to be hit, when the North Tower was hit, Wells was in his office and he uh, was there with uh, another uh, young man who was an also, Wells was a fully trained volunteer firefighter. So that's a big part of this story. Um, and he was there with another young man <clears throat> who was also a volunteer firefighter. So they decided to go leave their offices and go down uh, and um, try to help out at the scene at the North Tower. Nobody knew there was another attack coming. So, and nobody even knew it was an attack at that point. It was seemed like just an accident. So Wells was going down to help out with that. Um, that saved his life at that point because he was in um, in the in the World Trade Center because they were so high. There were express elevators from the ground that would uh, go up and down from what they called the sky lobby, which was on. Um, the 60 the, the on the higher the 78th floor of the south tower so wells went down to um he and he was in the stairwell because 
he knew not to take in an emergency situation. He didn't want to wait around for an elevator to show up and not all the elevators were working either. So he um, came running down the stairs to the 78th floor. And um, I personally think he must have been right at the door when the plane hit uh, because he, according to the eyewitnesses, you say he showed no sign of injury or burn. So, uh, which he surely would have, you know, had, had he been inside the sky lobby at that time. Anyway, so he um, got down, he was on the sky lobby at about the time this, the plane hit the South Tower. And that's where he was able to use his um, training and his skills to save lives. So he um, went around, put out small fires. He found, he knew where the exit was, the open, the only open exit. He found that off the sky lobby and he was able to direct people who could walk. Um, he said, for those of you who can walk, get up and come with me now, stand now. Uh, if there's anyone you can help, help them, uh, but come up and move with me now. So he directed people to the, um, only exit that was available off the sky lobby carried a woman over his shoulders down to the 68th floor approximately or 62nd floor um approximately um and then uh he was also with um at that first trip with ling young who was burned over 40 percent of her body she's one of the people that was recognized and i reached out to as to as someone who survived she was burned over 40% of her body. But Well said, can you carry a fire extinguisher? And she said, yes. He said, well, carry, please carry one because we may need it going down. So they made their way down to about the 60, 61st floor. So, and um, Ling, uh, Wells put the woman down that he was carrying and said, I have to go back up and help others. And Ling said, do I need to carry the fire extinguisher and lights were on. Everything seemed pretty normal at that point. So well said, keep, you know, it's okay, just keep going. So he went back up and found um, Judy Ween and the group of people she was with, directed them to the exit. And that's how Judy and Ling were able to piece together the order of who came down first, because Judy said, I saw this fire extinguisher sitting in the stairwell in this sort of a strange place and thought that was odd. So ah, she, they okay. knew Judy came down second after Ling. So that's all they knew of Wells. But we later found out that Wells was recovered with um, the uh, uh, FDI uh, incident commander, Donald Burns, and his men. And they uh, were actually as a group, because when the tower came down, it pancaked and created like a huge bellows effect. So um wells had made it to the lobby he was with um the other firefighters the members of the fdny and they were blown together as a group out and up against the wall of four world trade and that's where they were recovered so that's basically um what we had to to piece together with what he was doing in his final hour but the women he saved and the people he saved and it, it's been documented he saved at least 12 lives recognized him because he was wearing a red bandana to cover his face and protect himself from the smoke. And we knew that Wells always carried a red bandana ever since he was a little boy. So um, that was the clue that I read in the New York Times 
in at the end of May, fighting to live as the towers died, that huge article. That was the clue that <clears throat> caught my eye and why I started to reach out to these women. And we ultimately, I sent them photographs and they ultimately identified Wells. And you found that you, and that New York Times article was about like eight months later, right? Yes, it was uh, for Memorial Weekend of 2002. Mm. So at, at 8.46 a.m. then, when the uh, plane, when the first plane hits the North Tower, that's when Wells and, and his, his buddy, you said, the other volunteer firefighters said, oh, we should we should go help. And that's why he was about almost 30 floors, about 20, 20 something floors below his office, because he was actually already on his way down and out to go help. Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So he was actually that intention it's, actually saved his life at first um to save yes, others lives right. which is which is crazy to think about um but and then and then i guess then too at 859 the port authority evacuates or puts out a um an order to evacuate both towers which is two or three minutes before the second plane hits the south tower so that's why you have I think it was over 200 people waiting in that sky lobby at the time to take the elevators. And the reason they were there was because they were ordered to evacuate. So they're all waiting at the elevator. The plane hits between the 78th floors. And um, then your your son emerges from the stairwell, which is probably what did save him was because of that timing. The second time was because he was in the stairwell, not out in the sky lobby where the plane hit. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you didn't um, you didn't end up finding out until about when was it that you ended up actually finding out about Wells and, and having some some confirmation? Because I got to think that 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 time between 9-11 and when you actually did it, I think it was it's six months later, March of 2002, before you really found out um, or were confirmed. Over yeah, the from the, yeah, the re recovery. What was what was that time frame like? Were you able to were you like in New York working with first responders, having to file like a missing persons report and just wait it out? What was that time like? Well, yes, that was all done early on, very early on. And not only filing a report, my husband went into the city to do that, but we we gave DNA samples, uh, we provided um the you know, the the official people with samples of, you know, Wells's hairbrush, samples of DNA, dental records. It was horrible. It was, uh, it was horrible. And the worst thing I've ever, ever gone through in my life, losing Wells and, and all that had to, to, that went along with it. Um, there were support groups. I tried to, you know, participate, but that wasn't right for me. That, that was not, my way. Um, I journaled. I ha actually had premonitions about 9-11 before it happened. And, and a, a lot of um, spiritual epiphanies, aha moments, whatever afterwards. And so I kind of um, focused on that. And my girls, my, we had two daughters, and I was concerned that they were going to be derailed um, so I focused on that and my husband, um, we had a lot of support from family and friends, but it was a very cold, dark time. Yes. It's, it's, I mean, I, I can only imagine from that, that day going forward, especially he's, he's, he's missing and you, you have your presumptions for those six months, obviously until yeah. 
it happens. And you guys also witnessed 9-11 your, yourself on, on TV, too. It wasn't just uh, something that happened. You just got that phone call. I mean, you you basically were kind of there and present during that day as well. Yes. Yeah, we all were. Um, I, it was, I was in shock. I think I was at my office. I was, um, vice president of sales for a company over in a, a town over in, uh, Westchester. So I was across the river from where we lived. Um, and it was actually, I found out because I was sitting with my boss and, you know, we were planning a business meeting and, and the phone rang. Her husband was a stockbroker. Although his offices were not, he was in Midtown, he wasn't downtown. Um, and my uh, the phone rang and my boss said, it's for you, it's Jeff's secretary. Well, my husband was supposed to be at a golf outing that day. So I thought maybe something happened with Jeff. Mm. So I go to pick up the phone in, in my office and the um, my husband's secretary said, um, Wells just called, he wants you to know he's okay. I said, well, Wells, why wouldn't he be? And she said, don't you know what happened? I said, no, what happened? She said, well, a plane's hit the World Trade Center, but Wells just called to say he's okay. So I said, oh, all right. So um, so I thought he was okay. And then we get a report that the second tower is hit. And that's when I call. And then there's the report that a tower collapsed and the moment I heard that because we didn't have a television or anything at our shop it was just a radio, an old radio they were able to find so so I uh was able to I found out that I walked out to hear what was going on and people were just staring at me like just staring at me and I said well what's happening they said the second tower has collapsed and and when I heard that, I just knew Wells was gone. So I called my husband crying, you know, Wells is gone. And my husband said, don't say that he had skills. He could have gotten himself out, which he could have. My husband was right, but he um, wouldn't do that. He wouldn't leave people behind. He was there as a, now not an equities trader. He was there as a firefighter and he was going to save as many lives as, as he could, which he did. So yeah, because he had he he had a couple of chances to to leave, but just chose to keep going back up the stairs. Yes, to go back up the stairs, or even once he got out from the sky lobby, but also once he got down, all the way down, because they were at the lobby level, they were at the ground level, and the reports then were that it seemed like everything was normal, air conditioning was on, lights were on, um, and he actually, I we found out later that. Um, Lieutenant Burns and his men and Wells were going to go back up with a Jaws of Life tool, a hearse tool, to cut people out of elevators and to do whatever, you know, keep keep working to save lives. But that's when the second the South Tower collapsed. So, yeah, because the the elevators were still some of them were still working. That's what um yeah he he goes down. I think it was like the sixty eighth floor, and he sees the firefighters. The firefighters get the the victims he brought down and they then take the elevators down the separate elevators right down to the ground floor and yeah wherever i think they had to go down to even further from where he left them he said he said keep going keep going um i think it was maybe about the i don't know i, I don't i don't know i think it was maybe around the 40th floor or so yeah there were elevators that were working 
Yeah, and they and so, they kept taking them down, which is uh, which is really crazy to 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 think that the elevators were still operable up until almost the the actual collapse. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so then, where is this? Um, where was the red bandana project uh born? Because then you you hear about you read a New York Times article of eight months later after nine eleven, which is a couple months after only a couple months after you actually um, they're able to find wells. You're reading this New York Times article. There was someone who says there's a, a mentions a red bandana, and you know that your son always had a red bandana on him. And you're reading this article. It says, yeah, this guy with this red bandana did X, Y, and Z, helped so and so and so and so. Um, was that really where the the project and the foundation was born? Well, um, kind of. I mean, we uh, well. Wells's signature was a red bandana, so that was kind of a natural thing to link to, to him. link the two, yeah, yeah, um, because he carried it ever since he was a little boy. My husband gave it to him when he, we were going off to church one day. He probably was seven or eight years old, and and then he carried red bandanas ever ever since. Um, the um, where it was born. What happened was we started getting money from people just sending us money and so very quickly we realized we had to start a, a charitable trust so actually the charitable trust was we began my husband's brother was an attorney and so he set up a you know a thing an escrow account or whatever um so we could put the this money coming in i mean uh, we got something like thirteen thousand dollars collected from a bunch of firehouses in in Maine, I believe that came from. And so, you know, we wanted to use that money to do good. So we established the Wells Romney Crowther Charitable Trust, and it was finally um, given 5013C status in, um, in 2002, in early 2002. So that was the first thing we did because we, and, and we also decided that what we wanted to do was establish a, um, a scholarship at Nyack High School because Wells had talked about that. He said, when I make a lot of money on Wall Street, I want to start something and I want to call it the Birchwood Foundation because that's the name of our street where he grew up and he loved it. And so that was Wells's dreams. So we started the Wells from Crowther Charitable Trust. And the first thing we did was establish a scholarship at Nyack High School called the Birchwood Award. Um, the... Uh, um, the Rockland Symphony Orchestra, of which I was a member, um, gave a concert in November of 2001 and dedicated um, a movement from, from a Beethoven piano concerto to, to Wells. And so the second thing that we did was um, establish a scholarship at the Rockland Conservatory of Music and help, um, well, first thing we did was commit to sponsoring young people's concerts that the Rockland Symphony gave. So that's how the, the work of the charitable trust began to build. More money kept coming in. Wells's friends from growing up here in Nyack and from Boston College were doing fundraisers. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a beautiful thing. So it wasn't until actually, uh, and the purpose of the trust, the mission of the trust is to assist young people to become exemplary adults through education, health, recreation, and character development. 
which is basically based and, off of uh, Wells's life and and path and in, in his own life and how he lived, right? Yes, yes, yes. We liked it. Yes, that's right. And we thought these themes were would be very important to um, to think about for students to explore. And so that is that's how the Red Bandana Project came to be. Yeah, that's great. It's all and you mentioned student athlete because um Wells was a student athlete even through college, right? He was a lacrosse player at yes. um at Boston College. And and he I, I'd love love to get your your thought too, because this is like only an insight I think only you would be able to to share about Wells is when he was um on Wall Street and he's a volunteer firefighter at that point, right? Yes. There's gotta be an itch to not be wearing a suit anymore and to become a full-time firefighter. I can only imagine because staring at a computer all day, going on wall street, that commute alone going in and out of the city, which I've done can be very robotic and just soul crushing when you do it week after week, after week, after week, when you're really, it's and sounds. And I mean, he's, he's proved it that he's, he's more of a uh, service oriented person to others. What conversations did you have with with Wells? Because I've got to imagine he had some with you guys about leaving Wall Street and pursuing something else. Well, absolutely, he did. He uh, not so much with me, uh, but with his father. He was talking about uh, yes, there was that itch, and that's a great term to use. Um, he was really a man of action, and just sitting at a computer day in and day out, focused on that. It just you know. He knew it was a privilege to be able to work for this wonderful company, but he, he said, he, he said, I need more. And so he talked to his father and he said, I'd like, to, I'm, I want to think about joining, leaving Wall Street and joining the FDNY. And my husband said, well, Wells, you're a young guy. He's 24 at the time. Um, just, why don't you just keep working, make a lot of money on Wall Street, get your nest egg settled. And um, then you know, when you're 30 or so, why don't you think about joining the, the fire department? And well, so we know, dad, money isn't everything. Um, I just feel like I need to be doing something, something more. And so that was it. And after, after 9-11 happened and we were clearing out his apartment, um, my husband found an application to the FDNY partly filled out. So he was working on that. Mm. Um what he said to me was, uh, you know, mom, you know, I feel like I need to be doing something else. And of course, I was thinking, well, Wells, you know, whatever you want to do, you want to go back to graduate school and get another degree or, you know, we're happy to support you. Um, I had no clue that he was thinking about joining the, the FDNY. Hmm. Well, it's usually where that's usually the age where it happens, you know, mid 20s, you start to kind of have a uh, different feels on really what career you want to do. Cause you first get that life experience mm -hmm. and it, it probably, I mean, it would have only been in probably another couple months and he, he would have been a, a firefighter anyway. So he would have, yes. regardless of what it would have happened, he would have um, played some significant role on, on nine 11, just like he did. Cause he would have just been in the suit like he was, or actually in official FDNY capacity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, he was a very special young man. And I think he, I, I say this about Boston College, they finished off 
all three, because our two daughters also went, they followed Wells to BC. Um, my, uh, you know, I think that Boston College finished off Wells spiritually in a very beautiful way and, and completed the formation of our three children, excuse me, <laughs> as, as beautifully and as perfectly as we would have hoped with all that we worked to do for them as they were children and growing up and examples we were trying to set. And um, Wells, Wells in the end was very, he became very spiritual. So um, I think God was talking to him a lot. And I think he had an epiphany actually in Spain when he was in Spain with friends he said he was in a cathedral in Barcelona and he said famous cathedral and he said suddenly I just had this overwhelming understanding sense and understanding that my life was made for others my, you know my life was made for others to help others it's usually those thoughts those deeper reflections typically happen on vacations or when you're away from your ordinary life because you're out of the craziness. You're finally got a little short-term clean slate and you know, your creative mind starts to flourish when you're relaxed, you're calm, you're not around those different distractions that typically take up our lives at work and at home. And that's really when you do get a real true sense of, of clarity. So I'm not surprised that that's, that might be one of the, times where maybe he actually chose to take the actionable step and turn that thought and dream of being a firefighter into actuality, which is then filling out the application. Um, because like the end of, if you go away for like uh, a week, two weeks, you know, those first couple of days, it's more of like a, di a complete digress. You're finally away from work. It's like a, a little bit of excitement, enjoyment, but then later on towards the end of the vacation, but not the last day, usually is that little perfect little pocket where you have these these reflections of your inner self and you really reach a true level of clarity that I found that that might be exactly where he he finally found that that time to um, pursue it, which he ended up just doing anyway unofficially and <laughs> you know completely <laughs> yeah. unofficially he did it he did anyway so um <laughs> yeah it's not, it's not surprising and um as as 9-11 as the anniversaries keep keep happening I mean we're over 20 years already I mean I remember when I was I was in second grade when that first happened and you know more and more people are, are growing up now without ever being alive during 9-11 Yes, what yeah. what do you would you want them to know most about that day, and what would you want schools and and places to teach most about that day to people who just have never been alive to experience any of that? Um, that's a huge question. First, I would want taught. First of all, though, I would not want it sugar-coated. I would want people, I would want students, young people to know this happened. It was real. It was devastating. And it was a big eye-opener to the evil that can lie within human beings. And you can't be naive to that. It exists in this world. 
it exists in this world. And as sad as it is, there are people that are willing to go to, and many people that are willing to go to all kinds of ends to hurt others. And these people that they hurt weren't even direct. I mean, they were just normal people, innocent people, but they, but the, these terrorists didn't care. And they, they had their big mission that they were on. And, and there are people that can become very warped through mental control of others or through their own um, their own dialogue or conversation that they teach themselves about what what they they could do to to gain their ends they, and and it can be very evil. There's no sugarcoating that. It is a reality. And people try to gloss over it sometimes, maybe. I don't know. But the evil is there. The other thing I would want the kids to know, that mostly that day, the good in human nature shone brightly. The way other people courageously helped, helped other victims, the way the people from around the world came flooding to New York to help, to lend assistance, how brave, you know, first responders who were left climbed in that pile and faced their own possible injury or death, climbing around the still burning metal, you know, it was, it, there was, there was so much good that happened that day. And so that's how I focus on it, is that the good ultimately will overpower evil, but we have to be prepared to know that it can and take action. Yeah, people don't realize the, I, I love I love the point you said about the, the responders like pulling out their own, because that really is something I feel like doesn't get a lot of uh, immediate attention when we think about 9-11 is those experiences that those who lived and then went in still have yes. to deal with and from that first person point of view you know going in after and actually pulling out i mean bodies after bodies after bodies after parts after i mean everything it reminds me of the um the pulse nightclub shooting um where the police went in afterwards and there's i i believe 50 plus people were killed and all of all the officers could hear in the in the club because there's no music obviously during the investigation was just phones ringing it was phone yeah. after phone after phone after phone yeah. ringing because you know the family members are are looking for their loved ones and calling 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 and they're not going to stop calling until you know and and they can't then the investigators aren't aren't going to go turn off every single person's phone so then they're there sifting through bodies and and the scene and the bullets and it's just phones ringing over and over again. And we, and we really, uh, I don't think give a lot of too much credit to really putting ourselves in those people's shoes, walking up there and those who were the entire part of pulling, pulling people out of the, the tons of rubble that two buildings that are over a hundred stories worth completely collapsing, not let alone everything around it as well. 
It was an it was an unreal scene. I mean, we were down there uh, two weeks after, or a week after, maybe two week two, and um, it was just still smoking. You you know the fires weren't out. It was still smoking, and it was it looked like Armageddon. It looked like a, a set from a from a science fiction horror movie. It was just impossible to comprehend. I mean, I, you know, you just look at it and it's mountains high, taller than other buildings around of the rubble that was there. Um, two points that I'd like to make. Number one, those the first responders that did come in afterwards to help with the um, rescue and recovery effort for months, went on for months. Um, many of them have died from health related issues, health related to doing that. And many of them are suffering from health related issues due to that. Um, the other point I would like to stress, which probably goes back to the evil versus good situation, is that I would want students studying this to know um, and to embrace the idea that um, we can't just say, oh, let Joe do it. We have to, each one of us, take responsibility for doing good things, for making things happen in this world, because we're all capable of that. It's just a matter of the willingness and the mindset to know, yes, we can make a difference. It doesn't have to be at that level, but, and I say this when I speak to students all over the country, um, you know, we're, we're a creature on this planet with a, an, an advanced brain and opposable digits. We're the most powerful creature on this planet. And it's up to us to make this beautiful planet as, as healthy and happy and beautiful a place as it can be for as many people as it can be in, in a good positive way. And, and whether it's a, it, in a small role or a big role, we all have the opportunity to make good happen. Well, that's the thing. We always have this because of the, the people who came before us have done so well for others that a lot of times I feel like there's like this this thought of um, there's this assumption that it's still going to get done because somebody will do it. You know, but th mm -hmm. there, is, there is a somebody that is doing it. It's not just like this invisible person who just comes in and and does well and and things are okay like like there's there's like this thought of like this bureaucratic motion doing these things and and you know going off to war or going into a burning building when it is it is literally human beings that are doing that and we're we're fine as long as there's more human beings doing that than not doing that but we all have the capability and actually need to as a necessity to eventually in our life be one of those people that is actually doing it just like just like wells was right and it's and it can be you know something as simple as holding a door open for someone or you know picking up some trash you see lying on the ground rather than walking by it saying up oh, somebody you know somebody else will take care of that just you know just simple little things can make a difference i, I i'll never forget i was driving um, through kind of a campus situation. I saw a lady carrying a whole lot of books and then they fell. So I stopped the car. I got out and I helped her pick it up. And she looked at me incredulously and said, thank you so much. You, you really made my day. I said, well, 
I'm I'm happy I could help you. Of course, it wasn't hard to do. And yet look how it changed her experience of the day into something beautiful rather than something horrible. And how does that mindset then continue for her and others throughout the day through, through for others she encounters? Yeah, everything it's is like, reciprocal and um, contagious. Well, it's like dropping a petal into the into a pond. I mean, not a petal, a, a pebble. In, it's like dropping a pebble into a pond. And you see the, the ripple effects go out and go out and go out. And and how far out do they go? They go far. They yeah. do. And everything it touches changes the dynamic a little bit. It does. And I, I want to get your honest perspective on on this because it kind of goes into the, the point before of something, you know, beautiful coming out of something that, that really is is evil with the, the response being good to evil acts. And I because I, I do think about this a lot when I I get this because I see it quite frequently, especially when when the anniversary rolls around is pe people saying I wish we could go back to September 12th, 2001. And they say that because on September 12th, you cannot drive down your street. You cannot look in any direction without seeing the United States flag flying on every single porch of every house in front of every school on every car window. And then also hearing the, we will never forget saying, and also having that yeah. tattooed on a lot of bumper stickers and maybe one of the most patriotic days in U.S. history, September 12, 2001. Yeah. Yes. And now over 20 years later, though, and you obviously forever having the experience of the personal experience of 9-11 stitched into your life. Have you seen any shifts or changes to the response um, to 9-11 in the country and, and remembering that day since since 2012? Because I also take into account the amount of people that are now like maybe don't have that personal response like like you or experience like you do um that are you know have haven't been alive during that time um I, yes i mean obviously time time softens the impact of of what what happened for, for many people and many people haven't experienced it what's troubling me <clears throat> What's troubling me um, a lot is that more and more now I'm seeing people making decisions that are related to money and greed. For example, um, this situation with the PGA and Live Golf. The Live Golf is a Saudi um, a Saudi project, and they're basically buying by paying huge amounts of sums to professional Oh, they're golfers. buying everything, everything they're trying and, to buy right now. And the Saudis, there's so much evidence that the Saudis, members of the Saudi government were complicit and involved in the attacks of 9-11. This, this is now, evidence has been uncovered and it's been documented that there were governmental people in contact with the terrorists that this happened. The Saudis, the Saudis have yet to acknowledge and be accountable to 9-11 families for this. And yet these golf, these professional golfers and 
the gentleman that was the the remaining principal of San O'Neill Wells's company, Jimmy Dunn, is the person that brokered this agreement between the PGA and Live Golf. Mm. He put this together. It it's just it's just horrible. And now on the other, and so these people are making millions and millions and millions of dollars while 9-11 families are still trying to receive acknowledgement and accountability from the, the role that the, the Saudis played in, in 9-11. The other thing that's bugging me a lot is that we have had uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's the mastermind of 9-11 and four of his co-conspirators at Gitmo since about 2004. There have been hearings, 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 trials, trials, trials. Now, the um, this group is trying to say, all right, let's do a plea deal. You know, they've stalled and they've done all this kind of stuff to to stall the the the, um, the, the wheels of justice. Um, we want a plea deal. Let's take the death penalty off the table, and we will agree that we did everything we did, and we want to stay in Gitmo. We we don't want to go to the U.S and be in supermax excuse me the, the excuse me you're the terrorists that planned yeah. this get yeah. on trial put them on trial let's hear what they have to say because i've also heard other rumors that what they will have to say is that they're angry at the saudis because the saudis put them up to this and now the saudis are i've heard that report too that's come from uh masawi who's another person involved who is in supermax in the u.s so you know th there's so much cover-up that is going on with our governments yeah so much cover-up and still has been so much cover-up that to me is extremely upsetting and frustrating what's the thing it was it was about uh i think it was 20 20 people part of 20 hijackers and Zacharias Musayo was the guy uh, that's in Supermax right now in Colorado, mm -hmm. who's the only hijacker that is still alive. People don't realize that there is still one, one um, signed on hijacker that is still alive. Who's in Supermax right now, who was actually picked up on an immigration charge um, right before the, uh, right before nine 11. So that's the only reason he wasn't actually on the plane. And he actually was the one who was uh, that the plane he was supposed to be on was the one that ended up heading towards the White House that either crashed, got shot down by the government, however you want to say it. And the government being proactive in that immigration charge, not allowing him to get on that plane. That means that that plane had one less hijacker on that plane. And that happens yeah. to be the one that was the only one non-successful. So there is there there. There is a ton of uh, a ton of a ton of information be, uh, with 9/11 that I, I don't think a lot of people really do understand because they're, they're, we're just so um, consumed with with what did happen that day. I'm like surprised too at the the phone calls, the voicemails that were left from um, them on their family's phone. They sounded so calm. Hey, mom, mm -hmm. uh, this. Uh, the, the flight's been hijacked. Uh, it's not looking good. I just want to let you know I love you. Like I like it really. Like at the nine eleven museum, where you you can hear some of these. Yeah, it's riveting the the calmness in their voice. Or I don't know if it's, I don't know if they're 
so calm because they're intentionally trying to not stress out their their loved ones or are they just uh, I, I i don't know but the the human element of it really plays plays a heart-wrenching factor when you really try to put yourself in their shoes yes yeah yeah um yeah. and and i'd love to get your thoughts too on really where uh where can people find um the uh red bandana project and and help out in any way whether it's do- donations volunteering trying to to teach about Wells Crowther and, and that day and those experiences, where can people find you? Well, um, we have our CrowtherTrust.org website. We have our Red Bandana Project.org website. And um, at some point, we're going to be putting a link to these new digital lessons on, um, on our Red Bandana Project website that teachers will be able to download and use um, free of charge. The um, Volunteer and Service Learning Center ultimately at Boston College will will be a good place to contact. Again, we're in the building phase of this and what it's going to look like over the next year probably. Um, but we're very excited about this relationship and how uh, how the volunteer and service learning center wants to take take the reins which is a wonderful thing so people can um can look to those websites uh boston they want to help financially which would be great we have a venmo code i can send to you if that works i don't don't know if it will but boston college has a um every year they have a red bandana run this year it's going to be october 21st and uh, people can register online by going to bc.edu forward slash red bandana run. They can register online. I think it's $25 to register as a runner. And you don't have to run, you just register and you can form teams. You can do a run locally if you're you know, in your own time and space. Um, but it, it, it's the fundraising part is when, when you register. Okay. Done when you register. So, um, and there's also a donate button on <laughs> on the trust websites. So um, we invite you all to be part of our work and help us support. Okay, awesome. Well, that sounds that sounds great, Ms. Crowther. I I appreciate you coming on and um and and chatting with us today and and getting this message out because it's it's so it's so important, especially. For people who really don't have any idea about the events of 9-11, like from a personal experience wise, I was in second grade myself. So it's not like I, I even myself know that um, destructive feeling of that day, like the adults do, especially thinking, okay, well, we're probably going to be going to war soon. Who's going to be going to war? I mean, they're, they're, they're the events yeah. that took place after that, um, you know, really just trying to push out and resonate with people and make people feel like that, that, that did happen in our country. It can, any, anything like that has the possibility of happening again, if we don't continue to teach and get these messages and these, and these stories out there, especially about your son. I mean, God bless, um, you know, Americans like that are the, are the reason we, we still have a country right now to begin with, because, you know, we have Wells Crowther in the world trade center. How many, how many Americans, enlisted and, and went right over to the middle east to say nope th- yeah. th- this ain't happening 
again, it's only going to, if, if anything happens, it's going to be on your soil and we're going over there to do it. So God bless them too. And, um, and, and thanks for, for, for coming on. Well, thank you very much, Daniel, for your interest and your passion and for inviting me, inviting me on. It's wonderful that you're doing this kind of work. That's really, really, really excellent. So yeah. I, I appreciate this. So, and, um, so thank okay. you, uh, for keeping this good work going and, yeah, and keep people no, tuned in. No, for sure, for sure. No, I'm sure I'll I'll we'll link up down the road. Wonderful. Sounds great. All right. All Have right. a wonderful day. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Allison. Bye.